Apple sets a new record, Microsoft's CEO makes his intentions clear, payment businesses get hot, and that's just in our opening segment. Investors assemble. Motley Fool Money starts now. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. Global Headquarters. This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Emily Flippin and Ron Gross. Good to see you both. Hey, Chris. How are you doing, Chris? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll talk sports business with media reporter John Ulrand. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro. GDP grew at nearly 7% in the fourth quarter, making 2021 the strongest year of growth in the U.S. since 1984. Ron, you remember 1984. I do. When you think about the last few weeks for the market to be reminded of the strength of the underlying economy, for me, that's welcome news. I think I went to my first heavy metal concert in 1984, as a matter of fact. Good times. Uh, but yes, Chris, this was a strong report. It, it was good to see. A- any good news kind of in this environment is welcome. Much better than expected pace to end 2021. But that pace is going to lead to higher interest rates, which I would think is what investors are reacting to. For the full year, the economy grew 5.7%, as you said, largest increase in decades. The economy benefited from vaccinations, cheap credit, economic stimulus, but do not count on really any of that continuing in 2022. Uh, The good news is that economists expect Omicron to be a drag on the economy only in January and perhaps much of February, but then they believe it will start to ease. The Fed will likely start to raise interest rates in March to slow the economy and inflation. Three or four hikes, I think, seem like a definite at this point. Some I saw are predicting as many as seven hikes. To that, I say, ugh, that's a lot of hikes. Uh, we'll, we'll see how the market digests that. Uh, it's important to know that the fourth quarter strength in GDP was led largely by the rebuilding of inventory by businesses. That does indicate confidence among those businesses that they can sell those goods through. That's a wait and see. Uh, we have to see how that bears out. Supply chain problems will also be something to watch closely as we continue through this year. And finally, I'll say, wrapping up 2021, the economy recovered almost 19 million of the 22 million jobs lost near the peak of the pandemic. Wages have grown at the fastest pace in decades, but consumers' purchasing power has certainly been hurt by those higher prices. Let's get to some earnings. It was a big week, and we'll start with Apple. First quarter revenue was just under $124 billion, making it the biggest single quarter in company history. CEO Tim Cook said that Apple's supply chain issues are improving, which begs the question, Emily, what kind of revenue is Apple going to put up when the supply chain is actually good? (laughs) 
Well, just looking at Apple's quarter, you wouldn't think those consumers are under pricing pressure, as Ron just mentioned, because Apple absolutely knocked it out of the park with this quarter, which was surprising given the issues they've had with uh, obtaining chips for their devices, clearly a vital input in supplying products for consumers to buy. But earnings still grew 25% year-over-year, same story on revenue, up 11% year-over-year, the highest they've seen. So, a great quarter for Apple. And while gross margins also improved, as an investor, I just find myself kind of scratching my head with Apple. I think what the market is missing with this story is just the innovation, right? What is the new thing Apple is going to be doing these days? Because the most exciting thing they announced this quarter was something called SharePlay. And Ron, Chris, do, do either <laughs> of you know what SharePlay is? No, I, I do idea. not. Well, it allows you to share content like music and video over FaceTime. And look, look, that's great. I mean, it's not a bad thing, but we're talking about the most valuable company in the world at over two and a half trillion dollars. Look, SharePlay just isn't gonna cut it. <laughs> Apple's a beast at what they do, but you have nearly $64 billion in cash on your balance sheet. Come on, let's buy Peloton, Apple. Let's do it. Let's shake things up. No, no, do not buy a Peloton. <laughs> Let's stick with that for a second, because that's an idea I've seen out there. Emily, Apple's made a lot of investments in health. Uh, that's a big part of the Apple Watch. I mean, all kidding aside, does Peloton make sense as an acquisition for Apple? I really think it does. The engagement levels that Peloton posts forward are truly impressive. And while the market is clearly much smaller than what you know Peloton believed it to be at one point, the market still exists. And Apple hasn't done that well in some of their other initiatives, right? Apple TV comes to mind as not being a huge player in the streaming market. If you want to make Apple Fitness a success, I think an acquisition in this case is needed. Microsoft's second quarter results were highlighted by nearly $52 billion in revenue, and CEO Satya Nadella following up on last week's acquisition of Activision Blizzard by confirming that, yes, in fact, gaming is the next big area of investment for Microsoft, Ron. Yeah, obviously, cloud being the the focus over the last several years with gaming being left you know, a little bit behind. But uh, I like that move, actually, because cloud is what transformed this company into the $2.0 trillion company it is today. Um, interestingly, when the earnings report was released, the stock looked really weak. Investors, their, their, their knee-jerk reaction was to sell the stock off. But things quickly turned once management assured investors that the cloud business still did have growth ahead, because despite the, the, the headlines about Activision, this still largely is a cloud story. Uh, looking at some of the metrics for the quarter, sales were up 20%, as you said, almost $52 billion in sales for the first time. Profits beat expectations. The intelligent cloud segment was up 26%. The Azure cloud business, which is part of that cloud, intelligent cloud segment, posted a 46% increase in revenue. But that was actually a deceleration in growth from recent quarters. So, strong in a vacuum, not so strong when you look at um, uh, 
recent quarters, and that is really what investors focus on. Some of the other segments, productivity and business processes, which include Office 365 and LinkedIn, up 19%. The More Personal Computing Division, again, the worst name of a division I've ever heard. <laughs> More Personal Computing, that's Windows, Surface, Xbox, up 15%. Shortages of semiconductors still hurting Xbox and the Surface business, but they're, they're managing that relatively well. Operating income up 24%, earnings per share up 22%. Um, again, the forecast for the cloud business was for an increase in revenue for the coming quarter. Investors like to see that. They returned almost $11 billion to shareholders in the form of share repurchases and dividends for the quarter. Love to see that. And then, as you said, don't forget the pending acquisition of Activision, significant driver to the gaming business. And I guess the metaverse is coming whether we like it or not. So that will certainly help Microsoft compete in that space. I'm still kind of shaking my head at investors selling off this stock because it wasn't quite as strong as they wanted it to be. What kind of short-term mentality do you have to have to look at Microsoft after this quarter, Nadella laying out their plans for where this company is going and saying, nah, I think the salad days are over. I know 30 times earnings, so you know it's not dirt cheap. So you have some people take some money off the table when the numbers don't look exactly the way they want it. But stock's off 15% from its 52-week high, along with other things. 49% return on equity for this company. They buy back stock. They pay a dividend. Uh, I am a proud shareholder. Big week for the card companies. Visa's first quarter revenue topped seven billion dollars for the first time ever, and American Express saw record spending on its card as Amex wrapped up its own fiscal year. Shares of both Visa and American Express up this week. Emily, I kind of feel like even if you're not a shareholder of these companies, you have to like what this says about consumer spending. Certainly. And CNN had a headline that was along the lines of, credit card companies soar as consumers go on spending sprees. And I know we like to have our own foolish takes on stories, but I have to say, that about sums it up here. <laughs> it's a good time to be a financial services business. People are getting back moving and spending. It's showing up in the financial performance of these businesses. Visa, in particular, pointing at cross-payment volume increasing dramatically year over year. That's a really great business for them because it's higher fees. So it results in higher margin revenue for the business. American Express is a little different. They have the same tailwinds in spending, but less opportunity to benefit from credit card adoption internationally because they're largely focused on the North American market. And they spent a lot of time talking about millennials and Gen Z and their perceptions of American Express, all very positive. But as a millennial myself, I have to say, I think American Express needs a rebranding because I do not associate that brand with youth. You know, that kind of straightforward headline writing may cut it at CNN, but it, it, it just won't work at a place like the New York Post. <laughs> you need some wordplay, you need something with a little bit more excitement. All right, after the break, we've got the latest on EV software and a big change in the C suite. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Emily Flippin and Ron Gross. Tesla warned investors that supply chain issues might affect production this year and that no new models will be coming in 2022. On the flip side, Ron, Tesla's fourth quarter profits and revenue did look pretty good. Yep, you nailed it. Those are the highlights right there. Easily beat expectations, but the stock sold off on disappointing product launch guidance. The stock's now off 34% from its 52-week high. 
The metrics in a vacuum for the quarter look good. Revenue up 65%, gross margins and operating margins widened, profits up 750% from a small base, but from a year ago. Uh, for the year, they delivered more than 936,000 vehicles worldwide. That's up 87% from the year before. Elon Musk actually returned to the conference call this quarter. He, he wasn't on it last quarter, and he spent a fair amount of time discussing the potential of self-driving technology and a humanoid robot called Optimus that the company has under development. He said the robot may be the most important product that Tesla is working on and has the potential to be more significant than its vehicle business. So some of the bluster that Elon Musk is is noted for. I don't think investors appreciated it. They're focused on really the car business right now um, and the product developments, and they weren't happy with what they heard. Uh, the company said they would not bring any new vehicles like the Cybertruck to market this year because of supply chain disruptions. The lack of a launch of a low-budget car in the mid $20,000 range also disappointed investors. CFO warned that near-term higher input costs could impact margins. Tesla's factories have been running below capacity for several quarters because of supply chain problems. I'm not sure anyone should necessarily be surprised about that. But it's just some highlights that they made on the call. I can't give any guidance here on valuation. It's just literally too hard for me to predict what the future looks like for this business. I do see some investors taking advantage of the stock's weakness to establish or increase a position. Obviously, some are heading for the hills with the shares down 34% from their 52-week high. It does remain a buy in eight Motley Fool services. Collaborative software company Atlassian posted strong results in the second quarter. They raised guidance and said they expect subscription revenue to increase by 50% this fiscal year. Not surprisingly, shares of Atlassian up more than 10% on Friday, Emily. Teamwork truly makes the dream work for this company, right? <laughs> Atlassian's bread and butter has been their, their core products, their team collaboration software. And it's just as relevant as ever to be in the business of collaboration software. Their core products, things like Jira and Trello, are still performing really well. And that showed up in their financial performance. They had adjusted earnings of 50 cents a share, which was much greater than the 39 cents expected. And revenue was also 7% more expected. And and that represented 37% growth year over year. So certainly a business, albeit a large one, that is sustaining growth pretty steadily. Um, but as much as there is a rising tide here, there's also a lot of execution strength. The space is really competitive, and many expected growth to slow in this industry coming out of the pandemic. But really, we haven't seen that show up in Atlassian's products yet. They're making a ton of money from their cloud apps, not just their cloud products, um, which are sales made in their entire ecosystem. I'd say this is a great business, really strong, but a bit of caution may be warranted here. Um, the business is still unprofitable, and while they generate a ton of cash flow. I think if there, you know, any sort of weakness in terms of the way that we saw with DocuSign over the last quarter, any sort of pull forward from revenue, this is still the type of business that can see its valuation contract. Home Depot is getting a new CEO. On March 1st, Chief Operating Officer Ted Decker will move into the corner office. He's been with the company for more than two decades, and this ends Craig Meaner's seven-year run as CEO. And when you look at what shares of Home Depot did during his tenure, Ron, Ted Decker has a tough act to follow. 
For sure. Shares up 275%-ish since uh, he uh, took the reins uh, back in 2014. Return on capital of 32% currently, up from around 21% when he became CEO. So a very impressive tenure. Uh, Ted Decker um, looks awfully qualified for this um, role. Roles in strategic development, finance and merchandising, currently president and COO. I, I actually really do like when a merchant rises to the CEO level, but it's not without its risks because a strong merchant doesn't necessarily translate to a strong capital allocator, and does they sometimes don't have other essential leadership qualities that CEOs need. We're seeing this play out over uh, at Bed Bath, where uh, Chief Merchandise Manager Mark Tritton from Target moved over to the C-suite at Bed Bath. Too early to tell how that goes, but I think so far so good. But I do like when merchants are in charge of merchant-type businesses. Um, so I think this. Uh, Company is in good hands. Stocks at 22 times. Um, I think it it's still remains a great company to own right here. Well, and it, it, this sort of you know follows the ascension that Meaner had. I mean, he had been with the company um, before he ascended to CEO. And uh, you know, anytime this type of thing happens, there's always some questioning of you know should they have brought in a, a, a an upstart outsider to have a fresh pair of eyes on the business but when you think about how you know this is not the home depot that was in need of a turnaround like it was earlier in this century Agreed. Steady as she goes. It's a very strong company. Um, he's inheriting. Ted is inheriting a very solid company with with great metrics, great great market position. Um, with Lowe's obviously being uh, the number two in the space, but you know right up there with them. Um, and I think uh, he he's got a tough act to follow, but he's being uh, given a very strong company. Uh, we've got some Lowe's news later in the show that we will get to. The story of McDonald's fourth quarter results and really their entire fiscal year was dealing with rising costs. Food, labor, paper products are all more expensive, and McDonald's expects those costs to tick up in 2022. On the plus side, Emily, the early results of the McPlant burger seem genuinely encouraging. Well, earnings and revenue did both mildly miss expectations. I have to say, this quarter wasn't nearly as bad as what it could have been. As you mentioned, between rising inflation and labor shortages, many assumed it'd be just a bad time to be McDonald's. But in truth, we're apparently all eating a lot more McNuggets and a lot more McPlants than we'd like <laughs> to admit. And even worse, we're willing to pay more for them. So while margins have been dampened over the past few quarters, and that's certainly keeping the stock down, McDonald's is actually doing a pretty good job, in my opinion, of making use of technology and automation. They're improving, improving that tightening labor market, plus hiking prices to pass along those costs of inflation to consumers. And we're literally all just eating it up. So there's clearly a little bit of pricing power with McDonald's here that I think the market is underreacting to. But this has certainly been supported by the sales of McPlant, which was a partnership that has been long in the making between McDonald's and Beyond Meat. They test out a trial of the McPlant, their vegetarian burger, and a few select stores. Trials went really well, and now they're going to expand it to more stores before potentially expanding it nationwide. Um, this is going to be critical for Beyond Meat. Ron Gross, Emily Flippin, we will see you later in the show. Up next, John Oran from the Sports Business Journal will weigh in on NFL ratings, ESPN Plus, and the prospects for a Major League Baseball season. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. There used to be a gray and tower alone. 
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. We're just days away from the Winter Olympics, the Super Bowl, and hopefully pitchers and catchers reporting for spring training. We'll see. But here to talk through a few of the business angles related to the sports world is John Orand. He covers media for the Sports Business Journal, and he joins me now from his home in D.C. Thanks for being here, John. Absolutely, Chris. Thanks for having me. Um, let's start with the NFL. Uh, ratings are through the roof. I think last weekend, uh, the four playoff games averaged nearly 40 million viewers. You never want to jinx it if you're one of the television networks uh, or the NFL, but is it safe to assume that this is going to continue through the Super Bowl? I mean, this really seems to have built on the momentum uh, in the second half of the NFL season. If you view the NFL like like a TV series, uh, then yeah, it, it, it should continue going on because they just had sort of a knockout round, and you know Tom Brady got knocked out. Uh, of course, Aaron Rodgers, who knows what's going to go with him? Those are sort of cliffhangers that, that got you know tied up a little bit, and people want to come in then for the for the next round to see what happen, happens to it. Generally, if the ratings are up about twenty percent per round, which is what it looks like, you should pretty much expect that to go. Uh, in the championship series and in the Super Bowl, with a billion caveats, as you know. I mean, down to what, what the weather's like. Is it is it going to be cold? It looks like there's going to be a massive snowstorm in the Northeast this weekend, which should make ratings go up a, a ton. Uh, close games that makes ratings go up a lot more as well. So there are a lot of caveats to it, but the NFL is sitting pretty and they're feeling pretty good right now. A few years ago, there was a narrative going around, and it went like this. Uh, the broadcast rights for live sports are a bubble that is going to burst. Uh, unless I miss something, I don't think that bubble has burst. And when I look at the ratings that the NFL has been putting up lately, um, I, I realize every sport is different. But uh, is it safe to assume that the cost of live sports is going to go up, in part because more than just traditional television networks are going to get in. I mean, we've seen Amazon make a big push for the NFL. Uh, it wouldn't surprise anyone if Apple did the same thing for their streaming TV. How much more can they go up? The NFL just completed deals for, for, for a contract that hasn't started yet that's worth $110 billion, billion with a B. I mean, it, it, it's phenomenal. I will say this. I've been writing about the um, sports rights bubble for two decades now, and it, it continues to grow. And, and my point is, like, there really has been no sports right bubble. But I'll suggest to you that there is a bubble, and the bubble doesn't affect Big time sports. So the, the the NFL, there's no bubble right now. The NBA, there's no bubble. The Big Ten College Conference, those rights are coming up this year. There's no bubble with that. But for these sort of mid tier, lower tier sports that you know just would come to the table and immediately get a couple million dollars for their rights, those are the types of deals that are drying up. And when and if that goes and affects the uh, the, the bigger leagues, you know, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, we talked uh, earlier in the week on this show about Comcast and their latest earnings report and uh, the fact that they have uh, the U.S. broadcast rights for the Winter Olympics, the Summer Olympics, for really for the next decade or so. Um, how much pressure 
is on Comcast for the Winter Olympics to go well. I mean, setting aside the political implications of the games being in China, um, it seems like an opportunity and also a challenge for Comcast if one of their main goals, and it does seem to be one of their main goals, is to get more and more people using the Peacock streaming app. Yeah, I actually am taking a contrary stance to the Olympics coming up, and that there's not a lot of pressure on NBC. Uh, ratings are going to be down big time. They've already informed NBC's already informed the advertisers not to expect the, the, them to, to hit the, a ratings guarantee that was in the original ad contracts. The U.S. team is projected to win fewer medals than at any other uh, Winter Olympics. The time zone changes make it really tough. Nobody's really expecting uh, there to be a lot of activity on Peacock or TV ratings for these games, which makes it almost easier for Comcast and NBC going into this. People are are expecting a very low bar to jump over. If they get to that bar, great. Where the pressure comes in and how they've always viewed this is in 2024, all of a sudden those uh, Olympics go to Paris. And then in 2028, the Olympics go to Los Angeles. And so that's where the pressure comes in, because that's where Comcast and marketers and sponsors and everybody associated with the sports business have really projected a huge amount of interest from ratings, from uh, from online. Uh, and that's where the pressure comes in. Now, it's uh, nobody expects much, and, and we'll see what happens. Comcast made it clear that... Uh they don't really have the numbers in terms of subscribers and, and overall viewers on Peacock that they would like, and they're working to address that. Switching to the Disney Corporation, what is the state of ESPN Plus at the moment as you see it? Uh, ESPN Plus is a good adjunct to ESPN right now. Um, it's a good adjunct to uh, the Disney Plus bundle right now. So if you want to get into Disney Plus, uh, we have some sports services uh, that are over here. ESPN Plus uh, right now is really, in my mind, it's set up almost as a transition type of pro- uh, of product because they don't have the best sports and they don't have the the, the best um, editorial on there. They have good sports, they have good editorial, but the the price point is low, and and they're testing and they're trying to get people used to going to ESPN Plus or to Hulu now, where you uh, watch watch NHL games to see to to watch your sports. Their main, uh, they make the most money from ESPN, um, of course, from from cable operators. That's not going away anytime soon, but it is it is declining. That that they're overseeing a declining business there, and so they're trying to prop up ESPN Plus. And as, and so when that when it happens, where ESPN the linear channel declines so much that you they're, they're going to make it available over the top. They're they're in a a much better position than any other sports network that's out there right now. Is there a point at which ESPN says, you know what, it's going to make sense for us to take this larger sport, more popular sport, and make it exclusive on ESPN Plus at the expense of their cable network? Yes, I think it makes sense. And I think that follows what ESPN has always done. Uh, Back in the early 1990s, when ESPN launched ESPN2, 
This is a famous story where they took a Duke, North Carolina basketball game. They were two uh, top five teams at the time, and they put it on ESPN2, even though ESPN2 was in almost no homes. And the idea was they wanted to pressure the cable operators and the satellite distributors to to carry ESPN2. And that's what they're starting to do with, uh, you can tell with the Australian Open. If you're following any tennis fan on social media, they're complaining because all of a sudden ESPN's not showing overnight matches. They're making the tennis fans go to ESPN plus in order to watch those overnight matches. So they're, they're trying to, you know, it, it explains a deal that they did with a uh, UFC uh, mixed martial arts uh, company. So much programming, including the pay-per-views are on uh, ESPN plus. And where that makes sense is that the, the fans of UFC are really hardcore fans and you want the hardcore fans to come in and, and actually pay money to see their event. And, and so UFC and ESPN both credit that, that UFC deal with goosing um, the ESPN Plus's subscriber numbers. I'm old enough and a big enough college basketball fan. I remember that moment, and I'm pretty sure my cable system did not have ESPN2, so I missed that game. Um, last thing before I let you go, how confident are you that we're going to have a full Major League Baseball season happening this year? Uh, right now, the Players Association and the owners are at odds with one another. Uh, I haven't checked uh you know, FanDuel or any of the sports betting sites, but I, I imagine there's a prop bet there uh, in terms of whether or not the season's going to start on time. Um, what do you think we're looking at? Quick caveat. I'm not covering this on a, on a daily basis, but of course I cover the business and I talk to the, uh, the, the, the people that are involved. And I always go back to the start of last season and the, the owners went to the players and said, you know, because of COVID, uh, because of the shortened uh, spring training, we want to take our 162 game schedule for this season only and make it at 100, make it a 140 game schedule. So they told the players, you get to work less, and we will pay you the same amount of money. And the players didn't trust the owners and said, no, we'll do that full. We'll do the full 162 game season. And that to me suggests that these two sides can't agree on the color of the sky right now. And the, the idea that they, that they are going to be able to sort of get together and f- find a, a happy medium between their two totally opposing sides is going to take a lot more gumption than I think either side has right now. So I'm very skeptical that they're going to start the season on time. Isn't the USFL uh, alternative pro football league. Aren't they starting up in April? This seems like a windfall for them. If there's no major league baseball in April, April 16th is going to be the very first USFL game. It's going to be on both Fox and NBC. Uh, it's going to be the very first scheduled simulcast of an event since the Super Bowl one in 1967. That was uh, 55 years ago. And I can't think of any, one of the reasons they picked mid April, it's because it's a couple of, you know, early season baseball games. Now, potentially, there are no baseball games there. You know, the, the NCAA uh, basketball tournaments will have happened. Potentially no baseball. Um, it, it's before you're really getting into the uh, NBA and NHL playoffs. I mean, this is really, really good news if, you, if you're invested in the USFL. You can hear him every week on the Sports Media Podcast with Andrew Marchand of the New York Post. John Oren, thanks so much for being here. Chris, I appreciate it. Thanks. Coming up after the break, Emily Flippin and Ron Gross return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Well, I beat the 
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Emily Flippin and Ron Gross. A couple quick things before we get to radar stocks. Lowe's is teaming up with Petco to test a store-within-a-store concept, the idea being that pet products such as food and toys, as well as grooming services, will be available at select Lowe's locations. The first one is going to open next month in Alamo Ranch, Texas. Emily, kind of seems like Petco needs this more than Lowe's, but what do you think about the idea in general? Well, this decision really came after 58% of consumers polled said they'd be more likely to shop at a home improvement retailer if they could also get pet supplies there, too. And this, to me, is hilarious, because it's true. In fact, why don't we also just expand it into grocery? I bet even more consumers would come to a home improvement retailer as part of their weekly stops so if they could pick up a carton of milk. And I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but in my opinion, these partnerships are really just trying to recreate the wheel, right? We have a second-tier pet store, a second-tier home improvement retailer, each grasping at straws here. In my opinion, we have a Home Depot right around the corner, and we have Chewy. Why do we need this? <laughs> I'm okay with them giving this a shot, but let's make sure it's you know self-contained over in the upper left-hand corner somewhere, because I don't need animals running around the store as I'm trying to find a screwdriver. Our email address is podcasts at fool.com. Got a question from Shannon in New Hampshire. She writes, I'm a long-term investor, and while I'm not enjoying the start of this year, I'm also not selling my stocks. Are there any areas of the market looking attractive right now? I know some unprofitable tech companies have lower valuations, but I'm looking for companies that are profitable now. Ron, I'm kind of with her. <laughs> As am I. It has been a rough start for sure, but I'm glad to hear that there's no selling going on. You can almost look anywhere and find great companies that have sold off to at least a certain extent. The S&P 500 down around 8 or 9% this year, NASDAQ even worse at 13%, and both of those even worse from their 52-week highs. So, you can, if you're looking for profitable companies, you can find some of the best companies that we have, whether it's Costco, Microsoft, Nike, Disney, Starbucks, selling at 15%, 20%, sometimes more discounts to where they were when they were trading at their highs. Um, so, definitely look in that space. There's plenty of great profitable tech companies that are also down even more as kind of they got thrown out with some of the uh, the companies that are not yet profitable. Um, but don't, don't sleep on those companies that are not yet profitable. There are still some that look awfully attractive here, uh, maybe the cloud service, the SaaS companies, that will grow into profitability um, in the future. And you should really have an allocation to those as well. Emily, what do you think? Anything in particular looking attractive to you? Well, Shannon's not going to like my answer. And while you can definitely do worse for yourself than to buy many of the companies we talked about on today's show, right? Microsoft, Apple being great examples, I actually think that you should be greedy when others are fearful. And I think the market is a little bit fearful of so-called unprofitable tech companies right now, which is still, in my opinion, an interesting time to get exposure to those businesses. And I would remind people not to focus so much on profitability in terms of that net income. What matters, in my opinion, a lot more is actually cash flow. 
And if you look at the cash flow yields of many of these businesses, they are market-leading, industry-leading cash flow yields. So, focus there. Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? A company that I I just took a little position in earlier this week that I'm doing more work on is Garmin, G-R-M-N. They design and build GPS-enabled navigation and communication devices. They are synonymous with wrist-based GPS. They were a market leader in wearables before the rest of the world took notice and built GPS into basically everything. Um, it is estimated that Garmin is the device of choice for about 90% of athletes at major running and cycling events. Apple clearly the big boy in this space with their smartwatches, but Garmin is a very solid cash-producing company, nearly $5 billion in revenue, impressive 59% gross margins, over a billion dollars evaporating cash flow, strong balance sheet, only priced at 20 times earnings, and they pay a 2.2% dividend. With Apple as the big boy here, I'm going to dig in and do a little more work before I decide if a bigger position is warranted. Dan, question about Garmin? Garmin. Now, that's a name I haven't heard in a while, Ron. <laughs> I remember a while ago, everybody would have a Garmin in their car for navigation, but I don't know, with GPS being built into every new electronic, I don't know, is Garmin still relevant? They are for sure relevant to the tune of $5 billion in revenue a year, uh, but there is competition here. I've got my Garmin Golf Watch, which I absolutely love, and um, but there are others out there, as I mentioned, Apple, so you got to be careful. Do you get lost on the golf course a lot there, Ron? <laughs> if you play like I play, you get lost quite a bit. <laughs> Emily Flippin, what are you looking at this week? A slightly different business than Ron. I'm looking at Fulgent. The ticker is FLGT. They're a genetic diagnostic and testing business that has experienced a huge boom from COVID testing since the start of the pandemic. The stock has been a wild ride, reaching a high of just under $190 a share before plummeting to where it is today, around $60 a share. It's currently trading at only two times the book value of their shares. And is my opinion, being priced as if COVID testing is going away forever. So, if you believe that demand for COVID tests won't ever fully disappear, I think this could be an interesting time to take a position in Fulgent. Dan, question about Fulgent genetics? Emily, it seems like this stock price is going back to pre-pandemic levels right now. Would you say that this is the time to get in on it? I think yes, is my short answer to that question. I will say the risk here is that COVID testing is no longer needed. So, if you're one of those investors who believe that COVID testing is going to go away, right? It's not going to become the flu. It's just going to disappear. Then I would certainly not say now is the time to buy Fulgent because it can go lower from here. But I happen to disagree with that. Emily, am I right, though? It was a testing company long before COVID even reared, reared its ugly head, and then that gave them this huge boost to their business that wasn't even expected. Um, so, if COVID goes away, they go back to where they were pre-pandemic as a solid company with strong testing technology. Yes. To be clear, the business is not all COVID testing, although that is the lion's share of their revenue right now. They have found ways to pull other testing into their test, right? So, they're combining the flu test and the COVID test now. If there's a market for that combined test long into the future, I think this could be a great successful investment. What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? 
This is a tough one, Chris, because as much as I was making fun of Garmin, it seems like it's a pretty solid company with $5 billion in revenue. But genetic testing is also, I mean, it's not going to go away, right? So I think I'm going to go with Emily on this one, and I. It, but it's really a toss-up. Ron Gross, Emily Flippin, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money radio show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.